So in, in continuance in prayer, um, knowing that we are prone to wander and forget, um, every month Lakeland does a fearless update. Um, fearless is our uh, financial campaign that we began in January that we um, raised $1.3 million, you all did, um, to go towards uh, ministries here at Lakeland and um, some ministries that we partner with around the world and locally. And one of the ministries that we partner with is Dignity Liberia. So if you've watched any of the news lately, you have seen that Liberia has been in the news. Even this video um, is outdated in some of the statistics. Kathy Gutierrez, one of our own Lakelanders, um, started the organization called Dignity Liberia out of her own story to um, help the clinics, the fistula clinics in Liberia, but her trip has been canceled for the fall, or postponed, we'll say, for now. But do you want to update us on what's going on there? Um, yeah, we did have to cancel our trip in October. Um, right now, there are currently more than 1,000 persons that have died of Ebola in West Africa region, and they don't anticipate it slowing down for another six months. Um, so it probably looks like my spring trip may be canceled as well. Um, but that, that's kind of what is going on with the Ebola. We, ha we canceled our trip, not necessarily because we felt like we were going to be in danger, which we would have been, but also because all of Liberia's resources medically are being funneled into the Ebola crisis. So the doctors that work with us in fistula um, and uh, the clinics there that are open for the fistula patients are being used for the Ebola crisis. And um, we've pledged $6,000 in the next three years to go towards Liberia, but I know that you just sent a check over. Do you want to tell us what happened there? I will. I'll tell you. There's a couple of things, actually, I want to make sure that you're aware of. The money that goes into Fearless to help Dignity Liberia also helps us send uh, containers, shipping containers, and we have done uh, two, actually kind of three, shipping containers now. And we just sent one in December. Many people don't know about that, but we were in cooperation with the Franciscan Sisters in Independence. They actually packed up the container for us and we donated the supplies. But on that container, they, they added some supplies that they had laying around the warehouse, uh, which was about five pallets of stuff we had no idea. So when we went over in February to unload this container, uh, we found cases and cases and cases of isolation gowns. And we thought, now, uh, what are we going to use these isolation gowns for? <laughs> we thought, these are, these are useless. What are they going to be able to use these for? Uh, actually, we thought if a person needed to go into isolation, they would probably die. Because the, the, the medical, um, the hospitals in there, they're just not equipped for something on that scale. But we went ahead and divided the supplies out among the hospitals that we work with, and we gave them out, and we felt like, well, maybe they're useless, but maybe there's something that they could find to use in them. Well, now with the Ebola crisis, we realized that God had a plan well before this crisis, and he made sure that those things were on that container. And um, it makes me feel good to know that God is doing it and not me because I thought it was useless, but God knew that there was a plan. So that was a, a cool thing that happened. And then when the Ebola crisis hit, uh, several of my friends that had lived in Liberia at one time uh, felt as powerless as we all feel 
over this crisis. What can we do? What can we do? The uh, president issued a quarantine mandate for all villages, and they had to set up in the villages uh, little sanitation uh, stations with Clorox bleach to clean, and they had to stock up rice for 90 days, and this is not something that poor villages can do very easily. So um, someone on Facebook said, but wait, we have someone in Liberia, Dignity Liberia works with the Liberians. She can help us get this money over there. And I started having money come from all over the world and we sent over $1,650 to help the villages buy the sanitation supplies. That just so, happened this week. Yeah, that just happened this mm -hmm. week. So there's just things happening there, even though we can feel, we often feel helpless when we hear these reports on the news. There are things that, that can be done through um, your gifts, through fearless and through prayer. So do you have any prayer requests, specific ones? I'd like to pray. I, I do. I, I want you to remember the churches that are on the front lines there. Um, we feel a small amount of fear here in the United States, but it's nothing compared to the fear that they are, that the Liberians and West Africans are feeling. Um, they are, it's a, it's a, to them, it's a real spiritual battle. Some of them feel that God is trying to destroy them. You know, they just got over the Civil War, and now they're going through this Ebola crisis that is wiping people out. Um, people are going to their pastors for counseling and and the pastors are going to isolation centers to comfort those and we've lost pastors pastors are dying as well so uh, churches being on the front line are trying to figure out what they can do so if you would pray for guidance for them and i said last time pray for safety i know that that's not necessarily something that we want to pray but god's got a plan there and we want to work within that plan and so pray for the churches, pray for the, the doctors and the nurses who are on the front lines and, um, and pray for the leadership that they would make the right decisions. We actually have a nurse that we've worked with for several years. She just got back from Australia where she got a degree in public health and she is serving on the task force for Ebola. So they're doing everything they can. Yeah. So uh, we're coming upon our sixth month anniversary next month, so it's five months in. So if you haven't got started, those are the kinds of things that we'd love to encourage you to do, even just the smallest amount, that if you haven't started on your Fearless Pledge, we'd love to have that kind of reserve in the account so that when there's something that's called upon that an emergency or crisis, a true crisis that's happening there, that we could send over money when there's a need. So that's just an encouragement if you haven't started. If you have, then thank you very much. This is the kind of thing that... Um, is is an act of worship and then when you hear something on the news when you hear something about it um, send up a prayer will you join me now um, lord thanks so much for all the health and the wealth that you've given us lord our next breath our next thought the ability to work the ability to know you lord we just pray for liberia we pray for kathy's friends kathy's um, pastor friends the people of God, Lord, and those who don't know, yet know you, Lord. We pray for the doctors, the nurses. Um, Lord, we pray for hope for them, Lord, in the midst of massive anxiety and fear and loss, great, great loss. We pray that you would bring comfort and peace that only you can give in such a crisis. We pray that you would call us to uh, remember when we wander. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen.
Imagine uh, the turn of last century, and you're a young boy, and one evening you go out like everyone else that night to watch the new spectacle, the invention of the electric light bulb, first started in the street lights, and then imagine what it would have been like when finally the electric light came into your house and you no longer had to light kerosene lamps or candles or have gas lighting. You would have thought nothing can stop us now. Technology and science, the modern age has dawned. What could ever limit mankind? The future is open because of science and technology. And it would have seemed strange to understand it any other way. This was the world. This was the world of a young man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was born around 1880s and then uh, went on to become famous because he was part of a conspiracy to overthrow Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. And, of course, if you know anything about Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life, he was hung by the Nazis two weeks before his prison was liberated by the Allies. And he goes down in history. But that's not all about Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer, when he was 16 years old, was challenging his professors. By the time he was 24 years old, he had two doctorates. He was brilliant. One of the professors that he had was a man that probably nobody has ever really heard about unless you're kind of a theology geek like me. It is a man named Rudolf Boltmann. And Boltmann was older than Bonhoeffer and taught at Marsburg. And so these two men were instrumental in the 20th century's theology because Boltmann is famous for making this quote. Listen to it and see if you can digest it. It is impossible, Boltmann says, it's impossible to use electric light and the wireless to avail ourselves of modern medicine and surgical discoveries and at the same time to believe in the New Testament world of spirits and miracles. You get it? He's saying, who can believe in water being changed into wine in light of the... Uh, Electric light bulb. That's right, students, I, you guys were dismissed to your uh, stations, whatever you got to do. Who can believe in, you know, walking on water when you have the wireless, telegraphs, and all this technology? Now, don't get me wrong, Rudolf Bultmann was a very strong Christian. But he was trying to bring together the world of science and technology and the Bible. And in his teaching, he said, well, those things like walking on water and changing water into wine, those were, we're going to say those are myths. And, you know, the light bulb now, that's real. Our reading today during prayers was from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And perhaps Bonhoeffer was thinking of Rudolf Bultmann's famous line about the light bulb, who can believe in the New Testament myths in the age of the light bulb, when he said, we no longer fear the darkness because we have the light bulb. 
But in Jesus' time, you waited for the dawn. The enemies came at night. And when that dawn came, that's when Christians would go to worship. Church happened at the crack of dawn on the first day of the week. And Jesus was seen and talked about as the new dawn, the light of day. And John in the Gospels or in the letters says, God is light. And Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Perhaps this is what Bonhoeffer's thinking about. Perhaps, also thinking about Boltmann, Bonhoeffer thought, Professor Boltmann, you don't have all the answers on this thing. Science and technology aren't going to cure all of our woes. And, we, and it went on shortly after that to go into World War I and to World War II, both of them driven by technology. If we have this great um, privilege of living in Kansas City where the World War I Museum is, and you really owe it to yourself to go down to it, if for no other reason than for the 17-minute movie at the very beginning where they introduced the World War I. The very first line in that little short film says, no one knows why this war started. And then they go on to name five reasons. Industry, metallurgy, technology, communications, travel, you know, militarism, and some other things. No one knows why it started. But what was going on is people thought, there is no end to technology, and let's have a war to find out who's going to win. <laughs> World War II? based off, off of social evolutionism, the application of evolution to socialism, to societies. And the Third Reich was supposed to be the new Ubermen. And the time of the Jews was over, and we need to wipe them off the face of the earth. Two world wars went on to prove Bonhoeffer's point that Boltmann was wrong. Technology will not save the world. And then Bonhoeffer put his money where his mouth is, went to jail trying to overthrow Hitler and was killed for it and became a martyr. In a word, Bonhoeffer was subversive. He subverted the light bulb, he subverted Boltmann, and he subverted Adolf Hitler. And I have a very simple message this morning. It's very basic. We, the church, ought to be as subversive as Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as subversive as the Bible, as subversive as Jesus Christ and the gospel. For Jesus was subversive. And you're like, well, what's this word you're throwing around, subversive? To subvert, if you look in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, to subvert means to overthrow, to overturn from the foundation. It's not a positive word. It's kind of a negative word. It means like to subvert a culture would mean to destroy a culture. Uh, to subvert a, a political party means to take them down. And you're like, well, that's not a real nice thing to say about Jesus and the gospel and so forth. But I tell you this, and I don't mean it in a really negative way. I mean what we have to do is we have to live contrary to the world around us. And my simple point is, is I think Lakeland is a subversive church. And if you're looking for a label for us, I would start with subversive. Subversive means that we're overthrowing everyday ordinary status quo living we live different as followers of jesus to be a christ follower is subversive to pray is to be subversive to say god intervene in this ebola, ebola crisis intervene in war bring peace 
That's a subversive thing because I'll tell you, there are other people out there saying, like, kill them all. And won't that be a good thing to get rid of those, you know, people who are taking up space on the planet? It's subversive when a Christian prays, Lord, let there be hatred. Instead of hatred, let there be peace. Lord, may the poor have jobs and food and health. Lord, may families get along instead of backbiting and, and creating divisions and not speaking together for years. Prayer is subversive because it asks the God of the universe to intervene in our daily lives and to change the ordinary status quo, acceptable way things are going along. That is damaging the world and people. Prayer is subversive because it asks God to move the hearts of people and switch their entire life agenda, their entire agenda in life, over to following a man that lived 2,000 years ago named Jesus. Subversion is how Jesus preached. These might sound like nice, polite words that we've all grown used to here when Jesus preaches in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says in Matthew chapter 5, You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And we say, oh, that's nice, Jesus. Let's all be lights. Imagine Jesus living under oppression during the Roman Empire, saying, you have to stand up. Imagine during that same sermon where he said, you know what? If a Roman soldier comes up to you and says, carry my pack for the next mile, carry it two miles. If someone comes up to you and says, give me your, your, your cloak, I need a coat, give them your shirt as well. Someone asks for a loan, don't expect to be paid back. Take up your cross and come follow me. And I'll show you how to be a subversive person. And we will re reinvent the world and how humans relate to each other. You know, I'm amazed at how little subversive activity it takes to actually be an incredible human being, to be a Christian, or, or to even just be a, a really nice person. I'm always amazed, you know, like if you have a new neighbor move in and you make a plate of cookies and take it over, they think you're like some sort of saint. You know, like, wow, somebody paid attention we actually moved in the neighborhood, you know, because the way it's supposed to go is like people move in, they move out, nobody knows each other's names. The moving van comes and those people shuffle off and everybody's like, hey, I wonder what happened down there. I wonder what the house is selling for. Keep on mowing the grass. Nobody cares. It's amazing how little you have to care in order to be special. If you invite a bunch of kids from your kid's classroom to your kid's birthday party, people think you're like you're going way out of your way being hospitable. I mean, you take them to Pizza Street and they, they're going to make a plaque for you. You know? It's amazing how little you have to do in order to make an impression on somebody. When I was under 10 years old, one of my older brothers took me down to Crown Center for lunch. I had to put on long pants. It was a very special occasion. <laughs> I still remember it over 40 years. My older brother wanted to go have lunch with me. That was cool. I remember a few years ago, we were up at the uh, family reunion, 
And my little girl and I, you know, she's probably about seven, and we stole away from everybody. We went down to the marina, and we got the 25-cent bag of popcorn, and we bought a Coke, a can of Coke. And we went and sat on a rock by the lake. And we ate that popcorn and drank that Coke. And for years afterwards, she'd say, Daddy, let's go get some popcorn and Coke and go sit by the lake. Because Coke and popcorn were illegal in the world of mom. And, <laughs> and uh, but not in the world of dad. And she remembers that. It's amazing how little you have to do in order to show kindness and love to somebody else and make such an impression. Let your light shine. Be the light of the world. A plate of cookies, a bag of popcorn, a note, a letter, a kind word. You go to lunch with somebody from work, they think you're their friend. You know, Jesus was subversive during this same Sermon on the Mount, as it's called, when the people followed him out there. Thousands of people followed him out into the wilderness. They probably took some food with them and some water, but that ran out because Jesus just kept on talking. And after a couple of days, everybody was hungry. And, you know, Jesus had been talking about, you need to share, and you need to love, and you need to be kind, and everybody needs to feed each other and all this sort of thing. You know, he's saying all these things, and everybody's like, yeah, but I'm not giving up my roll. I got this little loaf of bread, and I'm hanging on to it. So Jesus says, well, has anybody got anything? And one little boy who still didn't know that he was supposed to, you know, just listen to sermons and not actually do them, he came out and said, well, I got, like, some loaves of bread and some dried fish. Oh, okay. He was being subversive in his naivete. He didn't know. And then, you know how it goes, if you ever heard the stories, that everyone ate and ate and ate because Jesus just kept feeding everybody and feeding everybody. And, and they're beginning to think, like, this is like Moses feeding people in the wilderness, you know. Here comes the manna and all of that. And then even symbolically, they have 12 baskets left over, one for every tribe of Israel, which is also representative of all the 12 tribes of everybody in the whole world. In other words, when Jesus shows up, everybody eats. And if you would have showed another dried herring to a Hebrew out there in the wilderness that day, they would have like said, I cannot ever eat another bite. We're completely full. That afternoon, Jesus introduced the subversive kingdom. I remember nine years ago when a small bunch of scared Lakelanders, suburbanites, you know, with a mortgage and a car payment and paying off school loans and things like that, they all committed to a, a record setting over $2 million to buy this building. Some people took out loans even, which was highly unadvised and just insanity. Every month we were given $40,000. That's what was coming in to get us into a permanent location because we were living out of trailers before that. And within a couple of months, in the middle of winter, I was down in the inner city with a friend of mine, Chris Jaley, who's a pastor down there. And we were walking the neighborhood, and he was talking about things, and we were just talking about ministry in the inner city. And we went by a pink house, and it was a drug house. And he says, we've got to keep moving here because there's bad dudes live there, drug dealers, you know. And you don't want to be standing there staring at the house. And I, I said, Chris, what do you think a house like that cost? And he says, oh, it's about $40,000. I thought, every month, this church could buy a drug house. 
and put guys out of business or at least push them off somewhere else. We had suddenly become a subversive church, this powerful church, and it's the most powerful tool that any suburbanite knows. It was about money, you know? (laughs) That thing, that thing that Jesus said is a God, a false God. This church changed that year and set us on a course where we became very, very powerful people. These days, Lakeland continues, continues to dig deeper into our subversive agenda. Everyone who gives to our three-year financial challenge is, did you know that if you're giving to Fearless, even if it's five bucks or 10 bucks or any little small amount, did you know that you're breaking the law in communist China? Because we support the underground house church there, you know, which is illegal, so stated so by the communist government. Did you know that if you showed up in Beijing airport and you said, you know that I donate money uh, as a Westerner to the illegal house church that they would arrest you? A bunch of lawbreakers. You see what subversion looks like? You come with me next time to China and I'll have you preaching the gospel where you're not supposed to be and teaching English and sharing the Bible. Come on over. Let's just dig our heels in on this subversive thing and see where it gets you. Just kiss your wife before you go. That's all. We act subversively when we go south of the border into Mexico and feed families who get one good meal a day, rice and beans. And they built them a library. And the public schools are coming to the library because they don't have a library. And we provide uniforms for kids. Do you know what a uniform does for a poor kid? It brings tons of dignity. It tells them that they're important, that they have a future, a silly uniform. Because, you know, there's a group of other people standing down at the border telling to a, a bunch of scared, terrified Guatemalan kids that they ought to go home. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. I hope none of those same person, persons go to a church. I don't know how they'd bring those two worlds together. And in Liberia, like Kathy and Marta were talking about, young women with a fistula condition are cast off because their body is literally rotting and they smell and they're diseased and they throw them away out into the jungle. And Kathy and her team of doctors and nurses go in and patch these girls up and do surgeries and heal them and put them back and give them a a job and give them dignity. That's subversive. And you fund that sort of thing, and you're subversive. Lakeland continues to grow in this subversive identity. Did you know that the typical church in, in America rarely engages in these financial challenges to the extent that we do? This is a little moment here. I hope we don't break our arm, patting ourselves on the back, so bear with me here. But let me just give you a little statistics here that came out uh, just a few weeks ago. So hang with me here because I'm going to be quoting numbers at you. The, the average church, if they were to give beyond general giving, okay, tithing and just the general budget stuff, if they were going to do something special, if they were really on it, if they were extraordinary, according to the church world out there, if 80% of people who gave to the general budget gave on top of that, 80% would be phenomenal. 
out, uh, set records, okay? You know what Lakeland's percentage is of those who give to regular that have given to fearless? 99%. It's weird. Now, I don't know who one person, one percent person is out there, but, you know, no, I'm kidding. Um, you know that most churches, if people, if 40% of the church serves, like in the nursery and cleaning and doing stuff like this, just usual church jobs, you know, admin stuff, like the ladies who come in here and clean on Thursday afternoon, you know that? Like all you guys who dropped your toothpicks last week that I handed out, they came in here and cleaned those up for you, so thanks, ladies. Anyway, 40% would be normal serving in a church. Lakeland is 77 to 78% of you guys serve. And it's like... So we have this awesome stuff going on around here. In other words, people are walking the walk instead of just talking the talk. I call this discipleship. Let's put a label on it and call it subversive living, which is so strange because it's just normal for Jesus. The Bible's subversive. Jesus is subversive. His church is subversive. And you are subversive. All of these are subverting culture. When it, you know, in a culture that says, well, the rich always win. And the whites always enjoy the peace and justice. But the blacks and the browns, they get shuffled off to the, you know, forgotten neighborhoods. And fight it out in the dead places. It's subversive against that, that status quo thinking that says, well, you know, all that religion is good for is for a little pie in the sky and a little dream to put in people's minds to get them through the day that says, when you die, you get to go to heaven if you're good enough. And it's the subversive gospel that comes in and says, you know who actually gets to go to heaven? Sinners. People who raise their hand really high and say, I was a tax collector and a prostitute and a swindler and a criminal, and Jesus saved me. That's who gets to go to heaven. Not the morally righteous Pharisee type people who think they're good enough. There's no good enough to get in. There's only the blood of Jesus who redeems us from total loss. That's who wins in the end. And they're all subversive and belong to a subversive kingdom. I don't know what kind of church you're looking for these days if, if you've been, you know, just kind of checking us out. But um, there's a little correction that's going on around here these days. Pastor Marta has been telling me now for months, she's been saying like, you know what? Because she's in charge of like, you know, assimilation, new people and stuff. Pastor Martin says, you know, the, church, the church's first job is not to get you your best friend. And I'm like, oh, well, why? And she says, you know, be, because we're not a dating service. We're, and we're also not an adult daycare, you know. I mean, we'd be doing speed dating around here every Sunday if the church's main job was to get you a best friend. I, okay, I agree with that. I get you. It just doesn't totally work out that way. Not that you don't have friends around here and people know you and care about you and celebrate you and mourn with you and all these sorts of life things. But our primary role is not a social club. Our primary role is not a country club. Our primary role is to lock arms with other people and act subversively against culture and change the world, the world around us. That's our primary job is in that we gather under the name, under the banner of Jesus and say, that's what binds us together. That's why we're all so different, right? That's what throws us together. I think Marta's on to something. I had two separate conversations this week. And the conversation was, how come Lakeland's not growing? 
We're, we're kind of leveled out. Now, what's really amazing is we have this incredible giving, this incredible serving, this incredible devotion, okay? All these wonderful positives that any church would kill for, but, you know, we're not growing real strong, and so we're kind of scratching our head like, what's going on? We're, nobody's really worried about it, but, you know, we're like, huh. You'd think things like, we've got a lot of cool stuff going on around here. What's going on? Two separate conversations. Each person, independent from each other, said this. She said, you know, Dan, <laughs> Asking people to give tens of thousands of dollars and change their lifestyle and take care of the poor and serve and these sorts of things, that's not really a formula for church growth. News to me, huh? Duh. I hadn't really thought about it, but you know, at Lakeland, we switched years ago it used to be everybody come, and we had this little tiny step to get in here. It was real easy to hang out. Come, go, everything's fun. And then we'd get to these, like, hey, we're going to do something about the persecuted church in China, you know, where you got to give money and we got to serve, and then people would leave. Nah, I don't want to do that. Okay. So I just kind of got tired of it and said, look, look we're just going to tell you right up front. This place is going to cost a lot, and it's going to require a lot, and you're going to have to step up. So now we get people to leave on the front end as opposed to keeping them around for a little while. <laughs> but at least we're getting to the point pretty quick. You know? And I thought, I can't do any other. I'm not sure Christianity was supposed to accommodate culture and make us all, you know, healthy, wealthy, and wise in an American dream sort of way. I think we have always been a little out of step or a lot out of step with the culture around us because of Jesus Christ. We don't have to be weird to be Christians. We just simply have to be revolutionaries. If, it, if, if that's the way you read the Gospels of Jesus, if that's the way you read the Sermon on the Mount, if that's the way you read the letters of Paul and the other writers in the New Testament, if you read them like a lot of us around here read them, you'll read a subversive Jesus and a subversive church. And it's about the only label I can come up with around here these days. You want to be subversive? Let me just give you something to walk away with because this stuff's kind of a little thick and a little heady. I'm going to give you just the simplest of tools, okay? This is a little discipline that I learned years ago, and I, I'm a total failure at it, so join me, okay? Um, it's called don't steal people's ego food. Ego food, like what, say it again, ego food. Like someone's ego, they have food for their ego. And, and um, I learned this from John Maxwell. I heard him speak on it. I read it in his book on leadership. And John Maxwell says, you know what it is to steal someone's ego food? It's when they say something like, wow, what'd you do yesterday? I mean, you asked that. And they say, well, you know, we did a ton of landscaping. We tore out bushes and we put in edging and, you know, we dug stuff up and I had to tear down a big old bush and all this junk. Look at all these scars and everything on me. Man, I'm, my back's killing me and all this stuff. And then you steal your ego food by saying, oh yeah? Well, I got my chainsaw out yesterday and I cut down a whole tree and it fell on the house and I had to build my house back yesterday. <laughs> and they're like, oh man, I can't one-up that one. And you just stole their ego food. They were trying to tell you about how hard of a day they had on a Saturday, you know, doing yard work and then you one-upped them. And you stole their ego. They were feeding themselves, saying, like, I'm important. I'm somebody, because you guys know, you know, that adults are really just little kids, just in bigger-sized bodies. 
And they're trying to say, I'm cool. I did something neat. And it happens out here. Like, you know, you go out there and somebody says, well, I ate two donuts, man. I'm going to pay for that. And you say, oh, yeah, well, I ate four. You know? Well, good for you. You just saved some small child from, you know, childhood obesity or something like that. That was great. You see how it goes? Like, well, say like, well, that was neat. Two donuts. Go for that. You know, and it happens all the time where we say, oh, yeah. You can always hear, oh, well, I. Why don't you just affirm them in whatever they're saying? Like, good donut eating. <laughs> you know, like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Watch yourself at work. Watch yourself around the house. And watch how this goes on because people steal each other's ego food all day long. Instead of just sit, standing back, becoming less, and saying, it's not about me. It's all about them. How can I make them feel special? Just keep your mouth shut. <laughs> it's the best thing we can do. Just say, well, good for you. That's great. And try not to be cynical and snarky about it. Give them their ego. Everybody wants to be a star. Everybody wants to be special. And it's us, the subversive kingdom, who can do that in just the smallest of ways of being hospitable. I leave you this quote from G.K. Chesterton, who uh, wrote a lot of wonderful stories. If you ever, ever read any Father Brown detective stories, and uh, some of his other books are pretty heavy. But he was a, uh, a huge British man, and he didn't even really, he hated the car, and he wasn't even too excited about the horse because he thought the proper British man was supposed to walk with a cane down the street. Walk wherever you go. That's what humans are meant to walk. Chesterton's this kind of guy. And he said this quote, as, and it's thick, so we'll read it a couple times. He said this. Chesterton said, Christianity has not so much been tried and found wanting as it's been found difficult and left untried. Christianity has not so much been tried and found lacking something, like, yeah, it didn't work, as it's been found difficult and nobody wants to try it. I think he was totally right. Christianity is difficult, and we don't want to try it. And I'm just simply saying around here at Lakeland, we're trying. We don't have it all figured out, but we're trying. And the best word I can come up with is, come up for us is that we're subversive people because we're trying to follow Jesus. And may we do more and more, and may our light shine on a hill, and may we not trust in the electric light bulb just as a metaphor, that may we trust in Jesus, the light of the world, and may that's how we live our lives. Go out and do something subversive this week, even if it's just keeping your mouth shut. <laughs> now, um, we are going to end with the Celtic blessing. So would you stand with me, please? And we'll end with our good British Celtic blessing to complete our prayers from this morning if I can find the sheet. Join me. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace, everyone.